uh, or Pew Bible to Deuteronomy chapter 20. Looking at the whole chapter today, Deuteronomy uh, chapter 20, verses 1 through 20. These are rules for when Israel went to war. Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 1 through 20. This is the Holy Spirit speaking, so let's be careful to hear what God has to say to his people today. When you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God is with you, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when you draw near to the battle... The priest shall come forward and speak to the people and shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are drawing near for battle against your enemies. Let not your heart faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you the victory. Then the officers shall speak to the people saying, Is there any man who has built a new house and has not dedicated it? Let him go back to his house, lest he he die in the battle and another man dedicate it. And is there any man who has planted a vineyard and has not enjoyed its fruit? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man enjoy its fruit. And is there any man who has betrothed a wife and has not taken her? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man take her. And the officers shall speak further to the people and say, Is there any man who is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go back to his house, lest he make the heart of his fellows melt like his own. And when the officers have finished speaking to the people, then commanders shall be appointed at the head of the people." When you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. And if it responds to you peaceably and it opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall do forced labor for you and shall serve you. But if it makes no peace with you but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. And when the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall put all its males to the sword. But the women and the little ones, the livestock and everything else in the city, all its spoil, you shall take as plunder for yourselves, and you shall enjoy the spoil of your enemies, which the Lord your God has given you. Thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you, which are not cities of the nations here, but in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, You shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. The Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord your God. When you besiege a city for a long time, making war against it in order to take it, you shall not destroy its trees by wielding an axe against them. 
Ye may eat from them, but you shall not cut them down. Are the trees in the field human, that they should be besieged by you? Only the trees that you know are not trees for food you may destroy and cut down, that you may build siege works against the city that makes war with you until it falls. I want you to imagine if Dwight Eisenhower, the supreme commander of the Allied Expeditionary Force, who was in charge of planning and executing the D-Day invasion on the coast of Normandy in June of 1944. I want you to imagine if he gave a pre-battle speech like this one. A pre-battle speech in which he told every man who was afraid to fight to go home. To tell every man who is a new homeowner or a newlywed to go home and enjoy those gifts. See, the, the liberation of Western Europe from the control of Nazi Germany depended upon the success of the D-Day invasion, codenamed Operation Overlord. The assault involved some 156,000 American, British, and Canadian forces, and they all landed on that 50-mile stretch in northern France along the coast of Normandy. It was the single largest amphibious invasion in human history, and the Allied strategy depended upon big numbers. It relied upon big numbers as troops would come in wave after wave to simply try to overwhelm the enemy. They needed staggering numbers to punch through enemy lines because they knew the Germans were dug in deep in their machine gun nests with landmines and barbed wire and water obstacles set up. So even with more than three times as many troops, Eisenhower knew that many of the men would be mowed down on the beach before they ever pushed through. And can you imagine, can you imagine, in such a desperate time as that, in such a desperate moment, the supreme commander of the Allied forces delivering one final speech before the invasion in which he exempted a significant portion of the troops. If he said, are you feeling scared? Go home. Go home. New homeowner. New husband. Go home. Now, as strange as that sounds to our ears... That is exactly how Israel prepared to go to war. Everyone who was afraid was free to leave lest their fear spread to the hearts of others. And those with new homes, new vineyards were exempted from military services. And newlyweds were commanded to enjoy an extended honeymoon. They were told to go home and enjoy God's gifts. I think this is completely counterintuitive, but, but make no mistake about it, although the number of men left to fight would have been significantly less, nevertheless, they would have been a force to be reckoned with. Not because they were strong in and of themselves, 
but precisely because God's power is perfected in weakness. And they offered themselves freely on the day of battle. We are being taught in Deuteronomy chapter 20 to see the Christian life as a battle, as a holy war that we have been called to fight in, not out of fear, but out of faith in our crucified and risen Lord, who does not match strength with strength. That's not how he fights. Faith in our crucified Lord, who does not match strength with strength, but conquers in ways that sometimes delights, sometimes offends, and inevitably surprises us all. And so with that in mind, let's explore this passage this morning in two two parts. First, preparation for battle, and secondly, rules of engagement. To To really appreciate what Moses is communicating here, I think you have to imagine how you would have felt as a Hebrew coming out of Egypt. Imagine the panic as you see 600 chariots, choice chariots of Pharaoh, with an army behind coming after you. You thought you were free, but now your back is up against the sea And you have nowhere to go. You can see Pharaoh's army on the horizon with banners flown. And people around you are screaming. And the crowds are pressing in upon you. And you are shaking. But then in the midst of the chaos, a calm voice speaks. And says, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you Today, for the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be still. Well, then Moses lifts up his staff to the sea, and a strong wind blows in from the east, parting the waters, piling them up on both sides, providing a way for you to pass through safely from death to life. And you walk across on dry ground as the angel of God in the pillar of cloud holds Pharaoh and his armies at bay. And the Lord's presence lights up the night sky as you pass through on dry ground. And once you're through to the other side, God commands Moses to stretch out his hands one more time, causing the waters to come collapsing down, crashing down upon Pharaoh's chariots. And then as the morning light dawns, God's people begin to shout and dance and sing, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is a man of war. You see, friends, this is the story that shapes Israel's warrior theology as we find it described here in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 1. Look at verse 1 again. When you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, remember your history. Remember what the Lord has already done. You shall not be afraid of them. 
For the Lord your God is with you who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. This is basic training for the Israelites. Basic training began with remembrance of the far greater battle that God had already won for his people. It started with a recollection of victory and assurance that because God was with them, they could face present any present opposition. Friends, the same principle applies to us today. God trains our hands for war by reminding us of what Jesus has already accomplished and his far greater victory on the cross and assuring us of his presence that he is with us even to the end of the age. See, the story of salvation, the story of salvation revolves around an age-long war. The story of salvation revolves around a conflict. And understanding this battle is really key to understanding the Bible as a whole. For understanding redemptive history as a whole. In Genesis 3.15, God promised to establish enmity, fierce opposition, antagonism between the serpent and his seed and the woman and her seed. And this is, the, this is the conflict that unfolds throughout the Old Testament into the New when the decisive victory was won by the seed of the woman who crushed the serpent's head even as his heel was bruised upon Calvary's tree. The very first promise of the gospel, if you've ever realized this, the very first promise of the gospel is a declaration of war in which God promises victory by the seed of the woman. And as John puts it, in the fullness of time, the Son of God appeared to do what? The Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil. 1 John 3.8. And he did it in the most unlikely way imaginable. He did it by laying down his own life. See, this is not only the larger story in which the Israelites found themselves poised to conquer the promised land or when they found themselves attacked. It is the larger story in which we are living right now. See, regardless of whether we know it or not, the Christian life is a holy war. And we are not living during peacetime. The enemy, yes, the enemy has been decisively defeated at the cross, but he and his forces still wage war upon the church, upon God's people. And so we are called to fight, not, not against flesh and blood enemies, because God's people are no longer a physical kingdom among the kingdoms of this world with geographical boundaries, but even though the war is waged differently today, it continues and our basic training in the warrior theology of the Bible has not fundamentally changed. The way to prepare for battle begins by remembering that the decisive victory has already been won by the Lord of hosts 
who has brought us out to bring us in. And that's what Moses wants us to see. That's what he wants God's people to understand in verse 1. When we, when we feel we're outnumbered by what seems to be a vastly superior opposition, the world, the flesh, and the devil, this is what we need to remember. That Jesus' work on the cross was the greatest event in military history. Jesus' death on the cross is the single greatest event in military history. And because this decisive battle is over and done, everything else is cleanup. Everything else is skirmish. See, the, the, the greater exodus has already taken place, far greater than anything Israel experienced as they witnessed the the defeat of Pharaoh and his army firsthand. And so if you are in Christ Jesus, by grace through faith, you have already passed from death to life. John chapter 5, verse 24. So this is what we need to remember when, when you're called to fight, regardless of appearances. And please notice the emphasis on appearance there in verse 1. You know, it's interesting... Um, for, for example, Goliath, when Goliath of Gath pops up in uh, 1 Samuel, you have one of the most detailed descriptions. In fact, I would say it's probably the most detailed description of an individual in the entire Old Testament. Right? The, only, the only challenge might be the Song of Songs, where the man and the woman are describing one another. But that's a different story altogether. Goliath. You have this description of his armor from head to toe. The man is a walking tank. There is this focus on sight in the battle stories of the Bible. And I think that's, this is what it's teaching us. That regardless of appearances, the battle belongs to the Lord of hosts. And in Christ Jesus, God will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. So perhaps you're, you're fighting the world, the flesh, and the devil in your personal life or in your marriage life or family life. And there are these deep-seated battles, these deep-seated struggles, and, and you feel as though these things just keep beating you down. It seems like you can't get out of it. You can't change. But you know what you need to know? There, there are other things we, we can go on to say about things that need to be done to overcome destructive habits. But here's where basic training begins. You need to know that there is more fighting for you than there is fighting against you. That's one of the things we, we need to understand. In your struggle with indwelling sin, always remember that the war is already won and everything else is a skirmish and therefore fight with that knowledge. And do not fear don't panic, as we see here in this passage. It, it might seem at times like the enemy is greater, but the reality is if you are in Christ, you will overcome because greater is he that is in you than he, than he that is in the world. And so we don't have to be afraid, as Moses instructs the priest to say to the men before the battle in verse 3, you don't need to panic, for the Lord your God is with you to fight for you. Now, in verses 
5 through 7, Moses instructed the officers to give exemptions from military service for a number of reasons. If you have a new house, a new vineyard, a new wife, you are exempted from battle. Who, who does that? Who gives exemptions like that during wartime? Right? The brink of battle. And what is this meant to teach us? I think a number of things. I think first of all, it is meant to teach us that even in the midst of wartime, God's people live in light of God's victory and therefore experience a peace that surpasses understanding. Peace that surpasses understanding. It's on display in this passage, isn't there? There's a confidence, not not a self-confidence, but confidence in the Lord embedded in this instruction. The victory does not depend upon you. The battle does not hinge upon your strength. It's going to get done just fine without you. You got a new home? A new vineyard you haven't enjoyed? A newlywed? Go home. God's, God's got this. He can win the victory all the same without you. There is a peace rooted here in the reality of God and his divine sovereignty. You see, Israel's warrior theology taught them what Psalm 46 verse 10 means when it says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted. The warrior theology of Deuteronomy 20 teaches us that the reality of God's sovereignty gives us peace even in the midst of wartime. And these, I think these exemptions also underscore the priority of enjoying God's gifts. I was trying to think about how to explain this. And this is the, the best I came up with. It, it teaches us the priority of enjoying God's gifts. Right? A place to call home in the promised land. The common image in the Old Testament of a man enjoying the fruit of his own vineyard. Man enjoying the wife of his youth. These were all blessings from God. And he wants his people to experience and enjoy those blessings as a means of enjoying God. He he brought them out of a place of oppression to bring them into a place of blessing and plenty. And a certain priority is given here to enjoying God's good gifts, even over any conflict, over any fear, because the reality of divine peace, the reality of divine blessedness and divine plentitude and abundance is a far deeper and more abiding reality than any conflict we may face in this world. The chief end of man is not to fight. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So so brothers and sisters, don't let the fear of this worldly dangers or the loss of something, even clinical death itself, get in the way of you enjoying eternal life today. I think this is something we're meant to learn here. Greater concern needs to be given to matters of enjoying God, salvation, and his 
generous gifts. And when we rest in the victory that Christ has already won for us, it frees us not only to fight without fear, but to truly enjoy all of the blessings he has given to us. Right? We, can, we can participate in the battle as happy warriors, knowing that the battle belongs to the Lord. And don't you want to fight like that? Don't you want to fight like a happy warrior with a smile on your face because you know the Lord is on your side. The Lord fights for you. That takes us to the second part of the passage, the rules uh, of engagement. Notice, I think this is crucial. We need to notice that the rules apply here to two different situations. Rules of engagement for within and without the promised land. So there's these two categories. We'll, we'll misunderstand this passage if we don't keep these two categories in view. On the one hand, the nations within the promised land were to be devoted to complete destruction. The ban, according to verses 16 through 18. So that these nations and their gods could not become a corrupting influence within the promised land and leave God's people away to serve idols. So ask the question, why did God command them to do that? The answer of verses 16 through 18 is because they would become a snare. It would pose an existential threat to the people of God within sacred space. And so God commanded them when their sins, this is Genesis, when their sins were full in the land, to wipe them out completely within the promised land. That's one type of war. On the other hand, when Israel fought against nations outside of the God-given boundaries of the promised land, the rules of engagement changed. The Israelites were required to offer terms of peace to their enemies to any, and to any that were willing to accept them. If any refused the offer of peace, Israel was then to make war. Now, when we look at the terms of peace, which are described in verse 11, terms of peace which required enemy cities to submit to forced labor, that's probably a little disturbing to us, to our modern sensibilities to read that. But when we compare the terms of peace to what was typically done to subjugated peoples in the ancient world, well, then the humanitarian character of these rules becomes self-evident. I think, I think you see right away that these laws actually restrained the worst expressions of human cruelty. The Old Testament scholar Christopher Wright says, uh, an offer of peace probably implies a vassal treaty in which the city would become subject to Israel. The terms of surrender strictly include only subject labor, no other humiliation, violation of human rights, excessive brutality, or plunder were allowed. Subjection itself may seem bad enough, but when one sees carved in stone what the Assyrians did to their conquered or surrendered victims, for example, and paling them on stakes and taking captives chained to one another by hooks through the nose, Christopher Wright says restraint is the correct word 
for what is described here. And that same kind of remarkable restraint is seen in verses 19 and 20, which required the Israelites to even protect the environment of its enemies during times of war. Much like today, some of you have probably seen pictures of towns and cities devastated by the war in Ukraine. War wreaks havoc upon the land. It brings ecological disaster. But Israel was commanded to exercise restraint by being careful not to cut down fruit trees that could be used as food after the conflict. Now just think about that. Israel was commanded to be concerned about the environment of their enemies. It is another expression of remarkable restraint. And the focus here is to protect food sources for people after the war. It's it's concerned, we're still thinking about the, the commandment, do not murder. It's a concern with the preservation of life. The question in verse 19, are the trees people? That kind of question produces a certain view of the world. It might seem like a strange question, but it creates a different way of looking at the world. And I wonder if it's the way that you view the world. God's people were called to limit the damage caused by war in a fallen world and to remember the original mandate that God gave to humanity as gardeners and guardians of his good creation. Now here we should pause to to notice that, that God's people are no longer called to fight flesh and blood enemies in God's name. Paul makes this very clear in Ephesians chapter 6 where he says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And likewise in 2 Corinthians 10, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, taking every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. See, here and elsewhere in Scripture, we learn that God administers his kingdom differently under the new covenant than he did under the old covenant. Under the old covenant, God's people fought flesh and blood enemies in God's name because God's people were largely identified as a flesh and blood nation state, right? It was through the Jewish people that God promised to raise up the seed of the woman, a physical descendant of Abraham and a son of David, who would deliver a crushing head wound to the serpent. But now that Jesus has come and conquered the, certain, uh, the serpent and torn down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile, we no longer use physical weapons to fight in God's name. But still, someone may object, and of course a lot of people do today, asking the question, How could a God who is love 
ever command us, you know, a God who commands us to love our enemies. How could such a God ever command his people to engage in warfare to begin with? It's a, it's a real question, I think, worth reflecting upon. And we should probably do a Sunday school class on it sometime to dive a little bit more deep than we can today. But perhaps the best short, brief answer we can give to that question is to point out that the presence of divine judgment and divine wrath, the presence of the God's wrath in Scripture, is always assuming an even deeper understanding of his love. Another thing we could say is that God's wrath is not antithetical or um, in contradiction with divine love. Although love is often pitted against wrath as if the two were incompatible, the Bible insists that the wrath of God is actually a consequence and not a contradiction of his love. God hates evil precisely because he loves good. And the greatest revelation of this reality appears in the holy war that Jesus waged upon the cross. Right? Here we discover the real harmony that exists between the righteous justice of God and the perfect love of God despite any apparent contradiction. Right? Both are undeniably set on display. Seen upon that tree which still yields its fruit 2,000 years after the battle, the true tree of life. See, Jesus is the promised seed of the woman, the greater Joshua, who has won the greater victory, but he has conquered in ways that defy our expectations. He conquers in ways, again, that sometimes delight, sometimes offend, but inevitably surprise us all. At the cross, God demonstrated that he does not match strength with strength. It's not how he fights. He displays his power through weakness. And in the weakness of the cross, Christ won the greatest victory. And what that means for us brothers and sisters, is we can fight. We can fight the good fight of faith without fear because Jesus has already secured the decisive victory. He, he crushed the serpent's head by himself being bruised. Right? Like, like David, who took Goliath's own sword and lopped off his head Jesus overcame and conquered him who had the power of death by dying, by laying down his life. He disarmed the evil one. And so fear no more because the victory has been won for you and you are safe and secure in Jesus who fights for you. And who is with you to the end of the age. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that you'd help each one of us to 
to fear no more, not because we're, not because we're arrogant or, or cocky, but because our eyes have been opened to see and survey the wonder of the cross. And we pray this morning as we come to the Lord's Supper that you would fix our eyes on our Savior, our conquering King, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns for us. And we pray all of these things in his name. Amen.